This is David Tarkington, pastor of First Baptist Church of Orange Park and the First Family Network. You are listening to the teaching ministry of our church. Thank you for downloading this sermon. If you have any questions about the church, go to firstfam.org or call us at 904-264-2351. Acts chapter 8, as we continue in this story, this narrative that is taking place in the first century as the church is launched, and we have just read in the last few weeks of the martyrdom and the death of Stephen, this man of God who was killed for his faith in Jesus Christ. We value the fact that we were able to go verse by verse through Scripture, but by going verse by verse through Scripture, we must be careful at all times not to just present a narrative or, an, or, a, or a, uh, a vocal commentary of that which is taking place, but that we must seek that which God is saying to us through his living word in the context of the fullness of the word of God so that we not only hear, but that we hear and obey. So today we find ourselves in Acts chapter 8, beginning in verse 9. The church has been scattered and Philip has been moved to Samaria. And that's where the story picks up. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was someone great. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. But when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Now they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, "Give Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I may lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit." But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me. To the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Have you ever found yourself in a conversation with friends or, or loved ones, and the question is asked of you about the salvation or the Christianity of another individual? Questions such as, do you think that person is saved? Sometimes these questions are about celebrities or famous people because that tends to be human nature. We become fans of actors or actresses or singers or sports figures. And we really, really like them. And the image that we see portrayed, whether in commercials or in interviews, they just seem like really good people. And so as Christians, we really, really want them to be Christians too because apparently we can be even better fans if they're Christian celebrities that we can honor and like and 
go see their movies and watch them play their games. And so sometimes the questions come, hey, do you, do you think that, that person is a celebrity? I heard them thank God at an awards ceremony once. I heard that athlete say God. He said some other things too, but he said God in the midst of a game once. He seems to be, or she seems to be, a, you know, a good person. And I think that's part of our desire to give as many people as possible the benefit of the doubt when it comes to Christianity. Because we really want people to be saved. That's the heart of the church. That's the heart of God. We, we desire that people are Christians. So the questions regarding another person's salvation is asked often. Sometimes just in passing conversation. Sometimes it's a little more serious. Sadly, the questions regarding another person's salvation tends to get a lot more serious and a lot more uh, personally important to an individual if the question being asked about is a friend, a relative, a spouse, a child, a grandparent, a coworker, somebody they know well. And it gets even more intense in the questions when it's a close relative, friend, or family member who has recently died. And what tends to happen in our biblical understanding and as Baptists truly being people of the Word of God, holding to the inerrancy of the Scripture and the immutability of the Scripture, we know that there is only one way to heaven, but we become often, not we, but we as Christians in the world, sadly, sometimes become functional universalists when it comes to funerals for dead people that we love but we're not certain of their salvation. Therefore, we will do whatever is necessary so that we may sleep well at night to get them into heaven, at least in our mind. I didn't think I'd get a lot of amens, but I know there's probably dozens at home amening on their couches right now. That's a heavy concept when you think about it. It's sad and it's tragic. I don't know if you've ever been to, have you ever been to a funeral where the preacher tried to preach the dead person into heaven? You understand what I mean by that? That means there is absolutely no evidence of the fruit of a follower of Christ from the deceased that is being remembered, and yet the buzzwords of modern day counseling disguised as Christianity is to say he or she is in a better place. When the Christians who truly believe the word of God understand the math that there are a lot more people not in a better place than there are in a better place. There's a reason the road is wide that leads to destruction and narrow that leads to heaven. But we live sometimes out of, I don't know, regret, sadness, depression, as sometimes functional universalists just convincing ourselves that, well, they, you know, they prayed a prayer when they were four. They went to vacation Bible school. Such a good person, great neighbor. Surely there's a place in heaven for them. And we will then go to sleep at night feeling that, well, at least we'll see him again someday. And the fact of the matter is that those that have gone ahead of us, who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, 
I pray we do see them again someday, and I know I will because I too have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. But the fact of the matter is there's a lot more people that aren't redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, and I don't ever want to say I will see them again someday because I know where they are, and I don't want to go there. So for being really benefit of the doubt, I guess is the word I'm thinking, because I think it's because we have mirrors in our homes. And I think because we have mirrors in our homes and we know who we are and we're the ones that live in our own minds that we look at others and we think, well, you know, I, I, maybe, just hopefully, they prayed a prayer, they got saved, and all is good with them in their relationship with God. And I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt because I want people to give me the benefit of the doubt because I see myself daily and I know I'm not perfect. And so when you read a story about a guy like Simon, and you see the clarity revealed in a story about a guy like Simon, we can fluff it up and just say, well, I hope everything works out okay, but these, these are stories that are in the scriptures for a reason. And yet the questions often asked, the questions that often come to mind, the questions that come in the real world are, Pastor, what do you think? Was my mama, my husband, my grandfather, were they a Christian? And, and not just me, but there are pastors, good, godly men pastoring churches all around the world right now, often put in positions to determine another person's salvation based on barely any evidence, if any, especially if that person was not even known by the individual. It is the undeniable longing to find peace with the reality that someone is in heaven, or at least heading that way, without actually doing the real work to determine if they are truly believers. At some point, many good Bible-believing, gospel-declaring Christians live as functional universalists knowing that Jesus is the only way, truth, and the life based on our understanding of Scripture, but wanting so much to create a way for those that never surrendered to him to be there. In this passage today, we see a man heretofore not known to us in Scripture. He kind of shows up on the scene. He's an interesting character. His name is Simon. He lives in Samaria. Samaria is not a place good Jewish people would travel. And since this is the beginning of the early church, all the new Christians at this point are are Jewish Christians. So it's not even a good place that good Jewish Christians would want to go to. But yet, in God's sovereignty and his divine plan, he caused disruption in the city of Jerusalem and scattered the Jewish Christians throughout the region. And lo and behold, here comes Philip, plopped right there in the midst of Samaria to encounter people in the city and one man named Simon. And that's where we meet him here. Simon. Now Simon is apparently a pretty popular name in the New Testament. As you read throughout the New Testament, you start seeing a lot of Marys, a lot of Simons, a lot of Josephs, a lot of Jesus. I mean, there's this Johns, there's these names that just keep popping up. Simon, not Simon Peter. Nope, this is Simon the Magician. Not Simon the Zealot. Nope, Simon the Magician. And this narrative about Simon's life tells us much about human nature and provides the answer to the question, is he saved? So if you want three points for the sermon, the first is we're going to talk about unsaved Simon. Look at verse 9. There was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city. He amazed the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. That ought to put a red flag up right there. They all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest, saying, this man is the power of God that is called great. And they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. 
there's a whole lot, you know, people are like, well, was it really magic or was it just sleight of hand? Was he just like, was it a card trick? What, did he make a bird disappear? Here's the answer. I don't care. All I know is that from those that gathered around him, whether it was the dark arts of demonism or it was sleight of hand and card tricks, it really doesn't matter. The crowds around him were going, wow, he's really good. He should go on Samaria's Got Talent. This is incredible. And they kept gathering and gathering and gathering. We've got to be careful, though, when we start looking at characters in Scripture and trying to finish the narrative outside of what the scripture has given us. It's the same concept that some people come say, hey, pastor, do you think that Judas Iscariot was saved at the end of the story? Do you think he ever got saved? And I think it's that human nature that really wants everybody to be a Christian without ever having to repent. So the answer, I, I say, no, he's not. He was a thief from the beginning. So there's that story. But, but then here comes Simon, the magician. What, what, do you think he was saved? You, you know, here's what happened. He's unsaved right now. We get that very clearly. He's unsaved. And we have to be careful not to write a story the Bible doesn't give us. And often, we've got to be careful not just here, but everywhere. Quit writing stories that the Bible does not reveal. It is so very dangerous, and what it ends up doing is elevates human thought and reason over biblical teachings of absolute truth. Here's what I mean. It means this. It means that if you read a passage of Scripture that troubles you and bothers you, but because your human nature just decides you don't like it, you go, well, I think that's probably interpreted incorrectly because that's not fair. And you lean into your own understanding. It seems like that's a command somewhere in Scripture too. And when you start leaning into your own understanding of what's fair and what's not fair, what's right and what's not right, outside of biblical truth and outside the understanding of absolutes, then you're on the road of becoming, I don't know, a self-declared moderate, which then ends up being a religious liberal, which then reveals you're probably not even saved. Because you have stripped away that which Scripture says is unstrippable. So be very, very careful of this. To create a scripture that is more palatable to our modern-day understanding of what is fair and unfair will remove that which God has revealed to be holy and unholy. Simon is lost. He is unsaved, unregenerate. He's not seeking God. He's not an innocent bystander. He is an unsaved man who does magic tricks in Samaria for money and notoriety. The most important person in Simon's life is Simon. It's clear. He does the street magician tricks, the sleight of hand, the pseudo-supernatural, and he does it all for one simple reason. So that people would look to him and go, wow, he's great. You think the creation of celebrities for the sake of celebrity's sake is a 21st century thing? Long before anybody was trying to keep up with a Kardashian, Simon was saying, watch me, I'm the greatest thing here. This is a reality. So whether you're caught up with Kardashians or you're still trying to figure out why Chrisley is even popular, look, Simon paved the way. And if you have no idea what I'm referencing, congratulations. <laughs> so you just, just keep watching documentaries and saying yes to the dress and you're fine. So now, Simon is about himself. Simon was focused on his, himself and that's a red flag. By the way, not much has changed in the world. 
The world is still full of people that want to make sure that you know that they've arrived. And if you don't know that they've arrived, they will let you know they've arrived, and then they will let you know that you are so blessed to know that they're in the room with you. They will make sure that if they're not being talked about in the media, they'll say something, tweet something, do something to be sure you know they're still around because they, in their own mind, are the greatest. That's Simon. You know, it used to be young children at the elementary schools, you know, and 10, 8, 9, 10-year-olds, you'd interview me, you'd ask, hey, what do you want to be when you grow up? And you'd hear things like, oh, a police officer, a firefighter, I want to be in the military, I want to be an astronaut, I want to be a doctor, a lawyer, you know, all these, these, these things that they would dress up as. And now you're hearing more and more, I want to be a YouTube star. I want to be an influencer. For those that think I'm joking, you've not talked to a child under the age of 15 in a long time. This is number one on the I want to be list. It's our nature. Look out for number one and be sure everyone else is looking at me. I'm number one. But it's also an indicator of the heart. The heart that is self-focused cannot be fully God-focused. You can't have both. The transformed heart changes a person. Now, that doesn't mean that Christians don't sometimes sin. We do. By the way, we, we could probably spend the rest of the morning just sharing our sins. Anybody want to start? Where we failed in the past week. It's evident. We fail. But sin is not our nature as children of God. We have been transformed from that. We are no longer sinners. We are saints. Now, the way we may fall, we may step backwards. We may, as the Scripture says, pull out that old man as it's referenced It's different than the individual who has never changed nor sees a need or has a desire to do so. So you need to know where Simon stood with the Lord when we meet him. He's not with the Lord. But the second point is, and it's uh, seemingly good news, and and if you're going to write these as points, the first point is unsaved Simon. The second point is saved Simon, but you've got to put quotes around saved. Look here. It's some good news in the story. Well, it appears to be good news. Verse 12. But when they, the crowd, believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God in the name of Jesus Christ, they were baptized, both men and women. Verse 13 is amazing, right? Even Simon himself believed. And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And and, and seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. This is the missionary's victory verse, right? Isn't this what we want to see happen? Those who are farthest from God come to God. Those who are maybe a little bit, wouldn't it be great if celebrities became Christians? Because you know what happens in America when a celebrity says they're a Christian, they're automatically put as a keynote speaker at a conference they should never even attend. They are platformed as professional mature Christians and many of them have only stated they've been a believer for about a week and a half and then we wonder whatever happened to and how did that happen and why is this the case how come that athlete that used to hawk this bible and speak at the Billy Graham crusade now says he's a Buddhist and doesn't attend any churches at all that's for you NASCAR fans you'll figure that one out But this is the missionary story we want to hear. 
the lost person steeped in witchcraft, spiritism, false religion, whatever it may be, hears the gospel, responds, and as it says, believes, and then what is supposed to happen? Is baptized. Isn't that great? Believes and baptized. Now, we want lost people saved. I want lost people saved. Why does the church want lost people to become Christians? Because God wants lost people to become Christians. It is his desire. That's his heart. In 1 Timothy 2, 3, and 4, it says, This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Father, who desires that all people, all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of truth. That is God's heart. That's why we say have gospel conversations. That's why we want our loved ones to know Jesus. That's why we want to have a celebration at a funeral instead of a time of mourning. But something's not quite right with Simon's story. In in other words, Simon is that person revealed here. If you were to put him in modern-day vernacular, he's the guy that went to church camp, that went to vacation Bible school, that was invited by a friend to go to the youth camp or the concert or the event, or he went to the crusade, and he had an encounter. He had an encounter at an event. He was surrounded by others who were worshiping. And let me just say, if you've ever been to a crusade, a concert, or a camp where there are hundreds and hundreds of people that when the worship song hits and the lights are just right, and even pre-smoke machine, when it's just one of those moments, right, and everybody's hands are up, and even the Baptists have their hands up. They don't, they're so uncomfortable, but they try it anyway. And their eyes are closed, and they're singing the 7-Eleven songs over and over again, and tears are flowing out of their eyes. Lost people love those moments too. And that's why everybody sings together. It's a moment. It's not necessarily bad. But it's not the same as a salvation, rescue, new birth experience. It's just a moment. You know, I've seen people cry and sing at concerts. And then I've seen them do the same at Christian concerts. You understand what I'm saying here? I remember when I first heard this song. I was 12 years old. Oh, my goodness, get out my... We don't use lighters anymore because we're Baptists. So we get out our phone, right? I don't know, the Baptists where I grew up, they all grew tobacco, so they use lighters. So nevertheless, where my family grew up. But the concert moment, right? It's that moment. And so what does Simon do? He does what a lot of people did. They res- he responded. Hey, when there are hundreds of people coming down front at the Billy Graham crusade, it's easy to just join the crowd and come on down. It's like the greatest price is right moment ever. Everyone's coming down front. And God has saved many people at those events, so don't hear what I'm not saying. But I dare, I dare say that there are many who had moments that never experienced the, the salvific nature of God, that never had the new birth moment. It says even Simon himself believed and after being baptized continued with Philip. And so we read it, we go, that's it, that's right. He got saved, right? Isn't that all that's required? Hear the truth, believe, get baptized, voila! You get to go to heaven when you die. Once saved, always saved, right? I mean, all you gotta do is just follow the, it's a systematic plan. It's the Roman road. It's the four steps. It's the this verse to that verse to do this and repeat after me. And all is good. 
But apparently, according to what we read here, there are actually people who may go through all the outward steps of salvation, that know all the answers to the questions in Sunday school, that have a baptism certificate, can count themselves as a member of a local church, but this is frightening, in case you didn't, this, this bothers me immensely. They can do all of that and not be saved and not have heaven secured and not know Jesus. That's Simon. That's Simon from Samaria. That's Simon from the magician. That's Simon that we just met. And in only a few verses, see the truth of his faith laid bare. And amazingly, it sounds more like some that we know and maybe like Maybe some even hearing this today. Maybe some of you at home are hearing this and you're ready to turn this off. I'm going to challenge you to just hang with me for the next three hours or 30 minutes. So you have save Simon, unsafe Simon. You have quote-unquote save Simon. And then we're going to get to point number three. I worked hard on this. The not really saved Simon. Same guy. And this is where people get really frustrated and upset and confused and and. and, and you know, probably will not like what I have to say, and will respond like th- things like, well, who do you think you are, Pastor? I mean, really, who do you think you are to declare that Simon isn't a Christian? Who do you think you are to declare anybody's not a Christian? That's between them and the Lord. It's, you don't know their heart. Well, I mean, that's, that's true. When it comes to Simon, you don't really know Simon. He lived 2,000 years ago. All you're doing is reading a, 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 what somebody wrote down. Well, I, I believe the Holy Spirit gave us this and gave us all we needed and gave us, sadly, some really clear understanding of where Simon stood with the Lord. But people still get mad and they'll say things like, well, you know, he, he says he believed and was baptized. What more does he need to do? Have you ever heard of the men, you probably have, Charles and John Wesley? You ever heard those names? Charles and John Wesley, pretty popular back in the 18th century, I think. They, that's, a, that's their century. Uh, did a lot of work for the church in the, in the 1800s there or the 1700s. Um, in England, uh, even in Georgia, you know. So if you go up to St. Simon's Island and Jekyll Island, you'll see some Wesley historical sites. John and Charles Wesley, of course, most known today as the ones God used that really launched uh, the Wesleyan church, the Wesleyan movement. The Methodist church is the John Wesley movement. So that's where that all comes from. These are godly men. When they were young, uh, probably college age, they do what a lot of young men do. They started a club. They started a, a fraternal organization, a group that they would gather together with others. And, and it received a name from those that mocked them because, you know, human nature being what it is, we will mock that which we don't like or are not invited to. So they called their club the Holy Club. That's what others called it. So they had the Holy Club. And John and Charles Wesley in their Holy Club meetings with their friends, they would do some really exciting things like fast every Wednesday and Friday until 3 p.m. Once a week, they would gather together and partake in communion. They would spend the evenings playing Call of Duty. No, no, no. That's not what they did. They would spend the evenings reading and debating that which they are reading in the Greek New Testament and other classical writings. They would uh, manage each other's disciplines in that way and kind of a, uh, accountability partners, if you want to call it that. They would spend a lot of time visiting hospitals 
and, and going to visit the prisons, those that were in prison. And you know what? Of everything that I mentioned, every bit of that's good. Every bit of that's good. Memorizing scripture, praying together, partaking of communion, visiting the sick and infirm, visiting the prisons. Um, but what had happened was, is, is they had what, what it's called is an inadvertent asceticism. There's a good word for you. Now, what that means is this. They believed to be holy and godly was to take that which caused pleasure in their daily lives, like eating together and, and games, and remove all of that to create a disciplined lifestyle, <laughs> void of fun. They were doing all these godly things, and what I found interesting in reading about John Wesley, John did much for the Lord, much for the Lord. Raised in a Christian home, his mother was a, a deeply devout woman of prayer their mother. But John admits that it was not until years after the fact that he really had an encounter with God. In fact, by his own declaration, he was not a Christian while he was doing all these Christian things. Let that kind of sink in that John Wesley, one to be honored and looked upon and modeled even to a degree, if we wish to look at that, and says, I was doing all of these things and I did not know Jesus. To which I just scratched my head and thought, well, if John Wesley can do all that and not know Jesus, can people still attend church and just go through the motions of ritual and not know Jesus? Absolutely. Because we've got Simon the Magician that has been copied far too often. Identity in Christ is valuable and vital. Here's the challenge, though. As I'm reading about the Wesleys in this form of asceticism which denied oneself physical pleasures for a deeper cause, at that point and even today, it still remains a deep distraction for many Western Christians seeking holiness. It removes the love of God and the love of Christ and makes Jesus little more than a boss whose job is to check off the to-do list of what you have to do each day. Your quiet time, your prayer, your fasting, all those good things. But there's no joy in doing any of that because he's just the boss. My daughter's reading a book by John Piper's son, Barnabas Piper, called Pastor's Kid, I think the title of it. And it's appropriate since she's a pastor's kid. So she's reading this. And what she told me, she said, I could have written this. Um, I said, yeah, but let me just say, John Piper's son sells books. David Tarkington's kids write blogs. I don't know. No one's going to buy our books. So thankfully, Barnabas Piper wrote this. But here's one of the things, that, and I just glanced through it. So it's not just for preacher kids, but here's one of the reasons that so many preacher's kids walk away from the faith. Is they have a hard time falling in love with Jesus when he is simply dad's boss and the personal love for him is somewhere lost in the mix of the machinery of church and religiosity and behavior modification. And you know what I've discovered? That ain't just for preacher's kids. There's a generation, many generations, and every generation, I guess, at some point faces this. When Christ is little more than a boss <clears throat> checking off one's personal list of miseries, 
so that people can focus on their inner self to find their true self, we have lost Christianity. Have you ever heard of anybody, maybe you've had coworkers, friends, others that said they're just trying to figure out who they are. They're looking for their true self. I think Richard Chen said it well. This search to be true to yourself is the very heart of sin. The world celebrates your journey to be true to self. That's why so many people are, are struggling in who, they're, who they are, and this lie of be true to yourself is, has been perpetuated in our culture to such a degree that even those who grow up in the church struggle with their own identity in Christ, realizing perhaps they have none, and they ultimately abandon the faith of their fathers while coming out to themselves and to their friends and to the world as some new, improved, at peace with oneself person, not realizing that the phrase, be true to oneself, is a wide path that leads to destruction. So do not be exposed or be captured by these lies that sound like philosophical truths to hold on to. Be true to oneself. The heart of man is evil. And that's why we need a savior. And if I'm just trying to figure out who I am to myself, then that eliminates who you are and should be and could be in Christ. And it ultimately is idol worship. There's no way around it. Either God is who you worship or you are who you worship. And if you are trying to be true to yourself, it's clear who you worship. Identity in Christ is key, but so many truly never grasped that. John Wesley didn't grasp that at first. He didn't get it. Neither did any believer in this room or online today until we finally got it. It's not initially that which we get. The Lord draws us to himself and reveals, us, reveals himself to us. And when we surrender to him, we are redeemed. But Simon never got this either. Let me take you back to verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. Let me pause there and just say, listen, something big's going on in Samaria when you send Peter and John. These are two of the big three. Samaria is where no one chooses to go. So when Peter and John are hearing of what God is doing in Samaria, they themselves go rather than sending an associate. And they arrive. Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they may receive the Holy Spirit. For he, had not, it, he the Holy Spirit, <clears throat> had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. That's confusing. We'll get to that in a moment. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish, key word perish, because we know what perishes. May your silver perish with you, meaning you're going to perish, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right with God. Now, there are numerous, numerous theories as to what this passage means. So let's back up to the first portion of it, because this is a lot of confusion here. Some have contended that this passage means that not all Christians, not all believers, receive the Holy Spirit at the moment of conversion, and therefore, there is the 
conversion moment, and then there is the second blessing that comes later. And you may have friends and family, maybe you even grew up in a Christian church that, that taught this, that you get saved, and then later on when you have a manifestation of something such as speaking in tongues, you then have the blessing and the baptism of the Holy Spirit who comes later. So what that means is, if you buy into that, you're saying that a person can be a Christian devoid of the Holy Spirit until a later time when he shows up. Now, I know this might upset some for me to be so declarative here, but in case you're confused, let me just make it as, as easy as I can. That is wrong. There is no second blessing there is no baptism of the Holy Spirit that comes at a later date from the moment of conversion. There is no manifestation of the baptism of the Holy Spirit that is only declared through the speaking of tongues. That's a reinterpretation and a false interpretation of the fullness of what Scripture gives us. Outside of this, it is declared clearly that that is not what happens. So I believe that is wrong. And people say, well, Pastor, you know that, that you may be wrong on that. Well, I could be, but I'm telling you what I believe. I believe that is a wrong interpretation of how that is written. So then there's another theory. Some teach that the Samaritans in this passage were really saved, were truly regenerate, and possessed just a bit of the Holy Spirit. Just like a, like a little bit of spirit. But they did not yet have the spiritual gifts. So in other words, they didn't get all of God at the moment of salvation. Just to be clear, that is wrong. Make sure everybody heard that. That means this. That means the eight-year-old that surrenders their life to Jesus Christ gets all of God at the moment of surrender, has the same amount of Holy Spirit within the eight-year-old as the 80-year-old that got saved 70 years prior. Now, you might be talking about level of maturity. I don't know. The eight-year-old could be more mature than the 80-year-old, truthfully. But hopefully... And prayerfully, the 80-year-old who's been walking with Jesus for seven decades is a more mature believer. But this is the truth. The 80-year-old doesn't have more God than the 8-year-old. The 80-year-old doesn't have more Jesus than the 8-year-old. It doesn't have more Holy Spirit. There's not like a child's plate of Holy Spirit. And then you get the buffet section. Once you're saved, you get all of God you're ever going to get. So then there's another belief. Some state that the Samaritans' initial faith was defective and therefore the Spirit did not enter into them until they had worked their way up to a genuine faith. Guess what I think about that one? It's wrong. That's a works theology, and we default often to a works theology. I just got to do more, got to do more. But to say that they truly were saved, but they didn't get the Holy Spirit until they, I don't know, uh, memorized more verses and went to more classes and, and dug a well or something, I don't know, what, what are you doing here? You're creating a works theology of things you have to do to get the rest of God. So what's going on here then? If all that's wrong, what's happening? Here's what I believe is happening. What happened here is unique to that moment and is not replicatable not happening today it was happening then the holy spirit of god was withheld until the apostles could verify the gospel work why is that such a big deal well there were no text messages and instant videos being able to be sent from samaria to jerusalem there was no message other than whoever got on his uh ran in his sandals got on a donkey or rode a camel to jerusalem to pass the word along to say come see what's happening 
This is unique in the gospel's first movement beyond the city of Jerusalem in that region. So God sovereignly, and I don't have to fully understand, I just have to fully believe. God sovereignly waited to give any manifestation of the Holy Spirit until the apostles could be there to witness it. Now why? There's multiple reasons, I believe. But I think one is so that the apostles would see and could testify that the very same gospel that saved them as good, obedient Jewish men who finally believed that Jesus was the ultimate Messiah that had been promised and was the Redeemer, Son of God, God the Son, and became Christians, that the same Holy Spirit and the same gospel that saved them out of their, their, their life as good Jewish men and made them completed Jews and, and, and regenerate believers is the same gospel that could save a Samaritan. Because if that's not caught there, then you have this, well, we have the real gospel in Jerusalem, and Samaria has some cultic version that's not quite right. So God allowed it for the sake of Peter and John, for the sake of the early church, and for the sake of the unity of believers, because all of a sudden, here come the Gentiles. Saved the very same way that the Jews were saved. There would be no different Holy Spirit that indwelt the Gentiles than the one who indwelt the Jews. No question of the oneness of God. No question of the plan of God, the salvific nature of God. One God, one way, one truth, one way, one life. But what about Simon? So here come the apostles. They lay hands upon the people. The saved Samaritans have a laying of hands moment. The Holy Spirit is, is, is released upon them. God comes down upon them. It's an amazing Amazing moment that happens right here. And I, I, Simon, the magician, audaciously offers the apostles money so that he too can do what they just did because he likes the audience. You may say, well, he just didn't understand. Well, you see, that's, that's the nature of us giving the benefit of the doubt to those who should not receive it. He understood enough. And Peter, Simon Peter, understood completely. See, Simon Peter saw who Simon the magician truly was. Simon Peter saw the motivations that Simon the magician had. Simon Peter could see something in Simon the magician that perhaps, I'm not sure, but perhaps not even Philip could see because he was too close to the story. You ever had that experience, you know what I'm talking about, when, when you have to have a, a third party, a friend, a trusted relative, somebody, uh, a pastor, a deacon, a Sunday school teacher, a neighbor, to come and look at something to give you a, a third party perspective because they can see things you can't because you're too close to the story? Last Wednesday, the funeral for uh, Mrs. Nancy Sullivan was held at First Baptist Church of Jacksonville. Dr. John Sullivan, as I mentioned earlier, was longtime executive director treasurer for the Florida Baptist Convention. They'd been married over 60, 65 years, I think. They had a, <clears throat> a service there at First Jacks, and they had one recently at Broadmoor Baptist in Louisiana in Shreveport, where he had served as pastor for many years and where family is. So. But I'm sitting there and I'm listening to this story. And, and stories really, they grab you, right? And so there's things to laugh at. There's things that are really interesting, things I didn't know. So Dr. Sullivan, this uh, Southern Baptist icon, this leader in our denomination, at least in the state of Florida for many years, met Nancy Sullivan when they both worked for the FBI. Now, see, that's a story that's just not often told. 
But they met each other when they were working at the FBI in Washington, D.C. She's from Jonesboro, Arkansas, and he is from West Virginia. And they apparently met on a bus as they're on the way to the FBI. And uh, their eyes met, and the music started. It was a hallmark moment. It was incredible. The story goes that Nancy was a sold-out follower of Jesus Christ by then and was, for the remainder of her life, just a great disciple of our Lord. And she believed that John was a Christian, John Sullivan future executive director, treasurer of the Southern Baptist Convention, uh, the Florida Baptist Convention. So she brings him home to meet her dad back in Arkansas. And um, in that meeting, because they're going to get married, right? That's the whole story here. And, and so they meet, and her dad pulls her aside and says very clearly, he's not a Christian. Now, that's not uncommon for any father of a daughter to say, when any young man comes over, I'm just making sure, and it, no one's good enough for her. That's kind of how it works, right? But the truth of the matter was she thought he was a Christian. After they were married, not long after, she led him to the Lord. Now, that's not the model. That's not the way to do it. You don't marry that way and then get your spouse saved. You're supposed to do that before you ever get married. But nevertheless, here's my point. Nancy's father talked to John for a short amount of time and definitely didn't look at John with the eyes that Nancy was looking at him with. So he could see something she couldn't see. Her father could see that John says he's a Christian, but there's nothing there. And that's what he told his daughter. And it proved to be true. Simon Peter shows up in Samaria, and I don't know if Philip did this or not, but hey, here's Simon the magician. He's our celebrity Christian. He is very popular, and everybody thinks he's great, and he got bad. We just baptized him. But Simon Peter, he, Simon Peter knows what it's like to not walk with the Lord and to be called Satan. Even Jesus said, get behind me, Satan. So he's kind of been through some difficult times. When Simon Peter looked at Simon the magician, he called him out. For who he truly was. He said, you're going to perish. Your silver's going to perish. Your heart's not right. You don't know the Lord. This is all fake. You're a poser. You got saved to make money. You didn't really get saved. You got saved because the crowd got saved. Everybody in your town was getting baptized, so you got baptized. Everybody in your group was getting baptized, so you got baptized. Simon the magician, others may think you're saved. But it's clear that God's Holy Spirit gave Simon Peter eyes to see to declare him for who he truly was. Simon, the magician's selfish heart remained selfish. No fruit, no change, and the same is true for people throughout history and even today. You see, your Christianity is not based on what you've done. Let me just help you with this, okay? This is not an indicator that you're not, not a Christian. It is an indicator that we have trained our church members for decades to answer questions incorrectly. So let me help you. If someone says, are you a Christian? And you respond with, you got baptized. That's not the answer to the question. Are you a Christian? Well, I was baptized when I was 10 years old. That's great. You might as well tell me you got a haircut on Friday. Wrong answer to the question. Are you a Christian? Well, I, I, I've joined the church. I've always been in church. Wrong answer. If your answer to how you became a Christian is about something you did, then 
you have the wrong answer because the way you became a Christian has nothing to do with what you did, has everything to do with what was already done. Christ died on the cross. And it was finally revealed to you in a way that you were able to say, I surrender all. And I gave him control of my life. I had nothing else to give but me. If you added Jesus to an already busy life, if adding Christ to your life is like joining a community club, if joining the church was so you could get more customers for your own popularity, you might find that you're more Simon the Magician than Simon Peter. There is a key phrase in this rebuke from Simon Peter that loses something in our translation. The phrase is our insight into the heart of Simon the Magician. Peter says, you have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. You have neither part nor lot in this matter. That's Old Testament language that loses a ton by the time it gets to us in English. This is severe chastisement, severe strongly worded language. And it comes back, goes all the way back to Deuteronomy 12. And it indicates that Simon the magician, by his own words, by his own motivations, by that which he has said, by his revelation of what is really in his heart, by what he said, that he does not belong to the people of God. There are far too many heading straight to hell, who believe they're okay, they're saved, no worries. There are far too many that have enough knowledge of Jesus to not have Jesus. And, and, and I don't know necessarily what to do with it, other than to know that the reality is very clear. And in this age of coronavirus, where there has been such a, wow, such an impact in the local body, thankful that we're able to meet, thankful that we have online services, but also recognizing that those who were never really apart probably have not watched or joined in since March, as statistics are telling us. Those that are afraid to go to church but not afraid to go to Walmart, I don't, it baffles me. I'm scared to death to go to church and sit in a pew that we've tried to clean, but I'll go walk into Chili's. I mean, I get fear, but if you're going to be afraid to go to church, just stay home, be afraid of everything. I'm just, just be consistent. Over 1,200, I don't know, maybe 2,000 people that are on our church roll that have been baptized, put in the role as members. But how many have never changed? How many have graduated from God when their parents quit making them come to church after high school? How many claim to know Jesus but don't love his church? How many live just as they did before they prayed their prayer? Or if they did that as a child, live as, they, as everybody else does? How many are, when they're at work and they accidentally tell somebody they work with that they go to church, their coworkers are shocked? 
How many, of you, how, how many people that, that claim Christ but live as the world, they continue to lie, continue to cheat, continue to sleep around, they just live with each other, they never get married, they're, they're using God as their, as their own, uh, you know, well, we're just going to use them when we need him kind of thing. How many, how many people join churches to have free venues for weddings and funerals? While they have affairs, they excuse sin, they ignore holiness and are banking on a well-done, good and faithful servant from Jesus to come. But my fear is that far too many will find they are less like Simon Peter and followers of Jesus Christ and more like Simon the magician who posed well for a season. See, one was saved, the other thought he was saved. I don't know where you stand and I have to ask this question all the time. I know where I stand with God because I know I am redeemed by him. And that doesn't make me better than anybody else. But I know I couldn't become a Christian because I did good things. I know I was, I'm not a Christian because of anything I did. If not for grace, I have no shot. But thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Now listen. I've been around enough, and you have too, to know that there are men who have traveled all around the nation for decades building evangelistic ministries on the sole uh, machine of creating doubt among already saved Christians. You ever been to those services? You ever heard that evangelist preach where you know that if the, if the 12 disciples were there, nine of them would get saved again just by hearing that sermon? You know that, right? I've been in those. I've been at those camps where it's like, if you didn't X, Y, and Z, you're probably not saved. And the kid's going, I don't even know where X, Y, and Z is. I guess I'm lost. I'm not trying to stir up doubt, but I do believe this is key. For those that are not regenerate, that do not know the Lord, that are banking on something they did, but have never had a life-changing moment or experience with the Holy Spirit of God, you're not saved. And since life is to be lived with the end in mind, let me encourage you to get it right today. So at the end of life, the story is, 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 is really, really good. My parents called me a few weeks ago. They're probably watching right now, so I'm telling on them. But they're getting their will in order, right? And I'm like, oh, yeah. It's really awkward. You ever had that conversation? Hey, what do you want when we die? Are you dying? No. I don't want you to die. That's what I want. So I got a brother. We're splitting everything 50-50, but I get the bigger 50. So that's kind of how that works. I'm older. But it is wise, right? Because now my wife and I are going, I guess we ought to get ours updated too because I think the last will we did says that my parents will take care of my daughter when we die. She's in her 20s now, so I think she's good. So we've got to update that. But as wise as it is to get your earthly stuff in order so that your family doesn't fight over it when you're gone or not do your wishes if that's the answer, how much wiser would it be to get your spiritual stuff in order so your family can celebrate life at your funeral? And the pastor can say, well, she or he's in a better place because of Jesus. And I look forward to seeing him again someday. I'm going to see Simon Peter again some, one day. I've not seen him personally, by the way. But I'm going to see him someday, I think. But I don't think I'm going to see Simon the Magician. 
not according to what we just read. And I get to see all of you here today, and some of you I see through the TV. It's like romper room, right? But <laughs> some of you get that. <laughs> Sorry. 50 and older, it's hilarious. Um, but um, my prayer is I get to see you again. <laughs>